You are listening to The Catholic Wire. Welcome to another episode of What Every Catholic Should Know. Today, we are continuing our series on Baltimore Catechism number three, and we'll be looking at lesson number 11 on the church. This is your host, Brother Alexius, and I'm joined today by our usual guests, Father Carlos Zepeda and Father Jeremy Saunders. Fathers, welcome to the program. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good to be here. As usual, I'll read some of the questions, we'll discuss them, and then we'll continue with the questions. The first question in this section, on the Church. How was the true religion preserved from Adam till the coming of Christ? The true religion was preserved from Adam till the coming of Christ by the patriarchs, prophets, and other holy men whom God appointed and inspired to teach his will and revelations to the people and to remind them of the promised Redeemer. Who were the prophets and what was their chief duty? The prophets were men to whom God gave a knowledge of future events and connected with religion that they might foretell to them, foretell them to his people, and thus give proof that the message came from God. Their chief duty was to foretell the time, place, and circumstances of our Savior's coming into the world, that men might know when and where to look for him, and might recognize him when he came. How could they be saved who lived before Christ became man? They who lived before Christ became man could be saved by believing in the Redeemer to come and by keeping the commandments of God. Was the true religion universal before the coming of Christ? The true religion was not universal before the coming of Christ. It was confined to one people, the descendants of Abraham. All other nations worshipped false gods. What are the means instituted by our Lord to enable men at all times to share in the fruits of the redemption? The means instituted by our Lord to enable men at all times to share in the fruits of redemption are the church and the sacraments. What is the church? The Church is the congregation of all those who profess the faith of Christ, partake of the same sacraments, and are governed by their lawful pastors under one visible head. So I decided to break off the first uh, section of questions there. Fathers, do you have any comments on these these first few questions? My first comment would be, I find it really interesting and something that is often overlooked, the fact that the Church... One could say that the church was existing since since Adam till our times, not necessarily as we know it right now. It was uh, an incipient church, um, but it was definitely the true religion, as it says here in the in the in the Catechism, and that is actually something that is worth looking into, because a lot of the things that we have in the church right now proceed. You know, they come from that first revelation. Uh, we were talking in the last episode about Pentecost and Easter being the same dates, basically, that they were celebrated in the Old Testament. Uh, I was just reading uh, and preparing for the episodes on the true papacy, and I was reading part of a, uh, of the books by Robert Bellarmine, by St. Robert Bellarmine, and he speaks about how even the papacy was uh, prefigured in prophecies in the, in the Old Testament. So it's very important as Catholics to be aware of the fact that the Old Testament wasn't an evil Thing, or it wasn't like a you know, like something where there was no true religion. The Old Testament was true revelation. It was a true religion, 
And it wasn't the church as Christ established it, but it was the beginning, so to say, of the church. There, there needs to be a careful phrasing there. I, I'm not sure if uh, I said something wrong there, Father, but you could let me know if I did. Well, I don't, don't know that I could phrase it any better, but I would you know, I'd pick up on what you said there. I was recently flying in uh, out by Vancouver and the full plane because the Americans could get back into Canada again. And I was sitting beside a woman who was on her way to visit her son, who was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And uh, so a rather interesting conversation for the course of the fight. But she commented on uh, some of the similarities you know, between Christianity and Judaism. Now, she was coming at that from quite a liberal, ecumenistic type of attitude. But um, I think it is neat and striking, the similarities that do exist between the true faith of, of Christ, the church, and the true religion of the Old Testament, that we have a continuity. They had formal worship. They had a priesthood. They had vestments. They had altars. They had sacrifice. All these things that continue through to the Christian religion in a more perfect way, that we wear vestments like the priests of the Old Testament did. And we have uh, golden vessels. And we have you know, all these things. God was so particular about how all those things were to be arranged in the Old Testament and I find it striking that the Protestant religions are a marked, a very marked departure from that. They have none of that. They have no continuity in the the type, the, the manner in which they worship God. You know, and that's, that's just a striking and, and encouraging detail to me. Mm -hmm. Something the bishop would mention often in the classes in catechism is that one for, one example, for example, of this is that uh, the the priest in the Old Testament, the Jewish priest, would have to take the 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 offering and i'm forgetting the word in english father you can help me out uh, the uh, waving is the waving, waving. yes they yeah. would have to wave it towards the fourth parts of the world right north south east and west and if you think about it you're taking an offering and you're waving it in the shape of a cross and that's exactly what the priest does you know uh, in one part of the mass he takes the offering the precious host is is not consecrated yet but he he will wave it in the shape mm -hmm. of a cross it's just really, really cool to see all these things. One one thing else that I would like to mention here is this. Um, one might wonder why why so much time? You know, why would you have the Old Testament for like 6,000 years as, as far as we can gather at least right now? Or, you know, the most common opinion is that it's about 6,000 years. And um, why so long? And the thing is, when you think about what it means to have uh, God become incarnate and living God, God living with us as a man and humbling himself and suffering, there is just so much that in there that would be hard to understand and even to believe that God used all that time to prepare the people of Israel for the truth of the Messiah. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself, but, you know, when, for example, the first thought of us would be if, if God comes to earth, he's going to be majestic. He's going to be a king. He's going to be powerful. He's going to just rule all over the earth. And in order for us to accept the fact that God was going to come in humility, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be mistreated and even killed by men, we would need to know that God approves of humility and that God chooses the weak and that God raises, you know, the small one and, and puts him in a high place. And that's why if you look at the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is kind of like a lesson, like a big class that God is giving us to let us know 
this is how I am. I love humility. I love obedience. This is what I'm looking for. And that way, by looking at all the Old Testament, if you were paying attention, when the Messiah would come, you would be prepared to say, okay, it is possible. It is possible that God would come humbly. It is possible that God would come to suffer because this is how God has been for all these years. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself. Mm -hmm. No, I think. A question that occurs to me on on that head, though, is uh, then why is it that the Jews who had these centuries of preparation and instruction, by and large, rejected our Lord while the Gentiles embraced him, who didn't have that, didn't benefit from that education? The answer to that question would be sadly exactly what we see today is that they they were not they were not paying attention. They were not paying attention to revelation. They were not studying the religion. They were not studying their catechism, so to speak. That's why it's very important for people to listen to the Catholic wire and to read their catechisms. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that, is that the ultimate lesson then of, of God's, uh, you know, centuries of education of the, the Hebrews that, uh, that it was all just to, to prove that, you have to take it seriously. You have to pay attention. Otherwise, you'll miss the boat when uh, <laughs> when the exams come. Well, that wasn't the ultimate lesson, but but certainly that's what happened. I mean, these, uh, the people that were tepid in their faith, that were not devout, that they wouldn't go to the sacrifices, they wouldn't pay attention to what was happening in the sacrifices, they wouldn't pay attention to, re- to the reading of scriptures. For them, they missed the boat. They, they didn't mm-hmm. understand the message. They were thinking about ruling over the Romans. But all the other people that were faithful, that were putting attention to scriptures, like our Blessed Mother, who was very well learned with the scriptures, uh, all those people that were devout, that were going to the sacrifices, that were trying to please God, for them, it made perfect sense what they were seeing. You know, they could accept them as And those kind of people. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you see a parallel today in the church today. How many people have accepted errors and modernism and heresies? And why did they? It's because they were not well-trained, they were not studying the religion, and they also were not being pious enough. And, you know, I don't mean to blame anyone, but that's what happens when we are not responding, corresponding to God's graces. We can be deceived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, just a, something interesting that I thought in your question, brother, is why, by and large, was there a conversion of the Gentiles? if they didn't have that preparation. But I don't think that that long preparation failed to benefit them. So we see the example of, I think is the Ethiopian man that Philip was sent to instruct. He found him reading Isaiah's, even though he was a Gentile. And he said, who, you know, I, Philip asked him, do you know what you're reading? He said, how do I know unless someone instructs me? But they still had, when St. Paul or the apostles came to preach to the Gentiles, a preparation that they could reference, I think. So it would have still been a, it would still have been a benefit. Like say Paul says in his letter, uh, father, you might know which letter it is, but he mentions, you know, that uh, God who first spoke to us through the patriarchs and the prophets has now in this last time spoken us to us through his son. So they were still making use of those lessons of the old Testament and of the doctrines of the old Testament, just as we do to this day in preaching to the Gentiles. So that's, it wasn't a lost benefit for them. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, so the Gentiles did did have the prophets, and they did benefit from uh, <laughs> that. That did reach them. Okay, because I was I was going to ask actually why God didn't send prophets to all peoples, but I guess they they did learn 
from the prophets that he sent to the Jews. Yes, and they, they, the actual writings of the prophets were widespread in, in, in the world in antiquity. In Rome, in Greece, they actually knew some of the writings of the prophets. Um, one, one of the, one last comment maybe that I should, there's a lot we can comment on this, and this, this might go for a while, but I would like to say one thing just really quickly. This is a very important episode. We're talking about the means, as the last question say, the means instituted by our Lord for salvation, which is the church and the sacraments. It's actually one of the most important ones probably that we could cover right now. And I want to say we have been struggling for 30 minutes to get this show ready <laughs> because the thing wasn't working. Our, our systems here were not working. And I'm thinking the devil might have been angry about this episode. And if you notice something we discussed, brother, I think in one of the, in the crisis in the church, uh, the main heresy right now, the main problem is an attack on the church. That's the heresy. The main heresy that we're seeing in modern times is an attack on the doctrine of the church. And that's why this episode is so important. All right. Well, hopefully we'll clear up all of those heresies and controversies by the time we're done with these church episodes. <laughs> Might be a long lesson if we clear up all the heresies. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's roll off our sleeves and get to it. Uh, I'll continue reading the questions here. Um, the next question is, how may the members of the church on earth be divided? The members of the church on earth may be divided into those who teach and those who are taught. Those who teach, namely the Pope, bishops, and priests, are called the teaching church, or simply the church. Those who are taught are called the believing church, or simply the faithful. What is the duty of the teaching church? The duty of the teaching church is to continue the work of our Lord, that our Lord began upon earth, namely to teach revealed truth, to administer the sacraments, and to labor for the salvation of souls. What is the duty of the faithful? The duty of the faithful is to learn the revealed truths taught, to receive the sacraments, and to aid in saving souls by their prayers, good works, and alms. What do you mean by profess the faith of Christ? By profess the faith of Christ, we mean believe all the truths and practice the religion he has taught. What do we mean by lawful pastors? By lawful pastors, we mean those in the church who have been appointed by lawful authority and who have therefore a right to rule us. The lawful pastors in the church are every priest in his own parish, every bishop in his own diocese, and the pope in the whole church. Who is the invisible head of the church? Jesus Christ is the invisible head of the church. Who is the visible head of the church? Our Holy Father, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the Vicar of Christ on earth and the visible head of the church. What does Vicar mean? Vicar is a name used in the church to designate a person who acts in the name and authority of another. Thus, a Vicar Apostolic is one who acts in the name of the Pope, and a Vicar General is one who acts in the name of a Bishop. Could anyone be Pope without being Bishop of Rome? One could not be Pope without being Bishop of Rome, and whoever is elected Pope must give up his title to any other diocese and take the title of Bishop of Rome. Why is the Pope the Bishop of Rome, the visible head of the Church? The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the visible head of the Church because he is the successor of St. Peter, whom Christ made the chief of the apostles and the visible head of the Church. Why are Catholics called Roman? Catholics are called Roman to show that they are in union with the true Church, founded by Christ and governed by the Apostles under the direction of St. Peter, by divine appointment, the chief of the Apostles. 
who founded the Church of Rome and was its first bishop. By what name is a bishop's diocese sometimes called? A bishop's diocese is sometimes called his see. The Diocese of Rome, on account of its authority and dignity, is called the Holy See, and its bishop is called the Holy Father or Pope. Pope means father. What do we call the rite by which St. Peter or his successor has always been the head of the church and of all its bishops? We call this rite uh, the primacy of St. Peter or the Pope. Primacy means holding the first place. How is it shown that St. Peter or his successor has always been the head of the church? It is shown that St. Peter or his successor has always been the head of the church, first from the words of Holy Scripture, which tell us how Christ appointed Peter chief of the apostles and head of the church, and second from the history of the church, which shows that Peter and his successors have always acted and have always been recognized as the head of the church. How do we know that the rights and privileges bestowed on St. Peter were given also to his successors, the popes? We know that the rights and privileges bestowed on St. Peter were also given to his successors because the promises made to St. Peter by our Lord were to be fulfilled in the church till the end of time, and that St. Peter was not to live till the end of time, they are fulfilled in his successors. Did St. Peter establish any church before he came to Rome? Before he came to Rome, St. Peter established a church at Antioch and ruled over it for several years. Who are the successors of the other apostles? The successors of the other apostles are the bishops of the Holy Catholic Church. How do we know that the bishops of the church are the successors of the apostles? We know that the bishops of the church are the successors, successors of the apostles because they continue the work of the apostles and give proof of the same authority. They have always exercised the rights and powers that belong to the apostles in making laws for the church and in consecrating bishops and ordaining priests. So, fathers, um, what do you have, have anything you would like to add to the questions we just covered? Well, there's a lot in here to add, yeah, Father. A lot of material. Um, we started uh, with, who, excuse me, there. Oh, with talking about who are the members of the church, correct? How how may the members of the church on earth be divided? Right. Um, yeah, it's almost almost a matter of where to start. But the duty of the church, that was one thing I wanted to uh, comment on, the second question we addressed there. This catechism is written in a very um, practical vein. So the quest, the answers are, are designed to be easily practical, applicable, practically applicable to a person's life and to, a, to the understanding of the average uh, person. And so they don't always, well, they express the truth. Sometimes they don't express it. Almost always they don't express it as concisely as, say, a theological manual might. And this is a point I've always found fascinating about the duty of the teaching church. You know, what's what's the purpose of a church? Why do we have the teaching church? And it mentions as to carry on Christ's work, and it mentions how it does that. But really, that works divided into three areas. And this can be really important to understand that the church fulfills that office of Christ, which is to teach, to govern or rule, and to sanctify now, the answer they give here gives how it does that, by administering the sacraments, by laboring for the salvation of souls. But to teach and govern and sanctify, it fulfills that same role that Christ fulfilled on earth of prophet, which broadly speaking is a, is a uh, teacher, priest to offer sacrifice, to sanctify, and king to rule and govern. Those are the three offices of Christ. And likewise, the three offices exercised by the church, by the teaching uh, church. Yeah, and I find that super important in, in this day and age. I've been a priest for only six months, 
but in this time, uh, I'm not talking about anyone that I know in my parish. In my, I'm actually very thankful with how the people in my parish, my parishes have received me. But uh, uh, something I've noticed in talking to people here and there is that uh, there has been a lot of uh, a, a great loss in that concept of the teaching church and the duty of the faithful to be to act as as sheep as disciples. And it's understandable, given the fact that we are going through such a crisis and, and there are so many people out there deceiving the faithful. You know, we have the so-called Catholic hierarchy uh, teaching modernism and heresy. They're not Catholic and they're not hierarchy. Um, but the, the problem is that with those who are still Catholic, you know, with Catholic bishops, with Catholic priests, we still have the duty and the need to, to act with them as faithful to actually listen to their teachings, uh, to to attend to those three offices that Father Saunders just made reference to. There is no such thing as a church without those powers. The church has to have those powers. Even in this time of crisis, it has to have those powers, one way or another. So the, the best way to act with bishops and priests is to act in that manner, to listen to them when they preach, to, to take them as an authority to preach, to obviously offer, off, go with them to when they offer the sacrifice and to support the offering of that sacrifice, which we know for sure is a Catholic Mass, and to accept the ruling of them. And, and this is, I know that here some people might cringe when they hear this. Uh, by ruling, we simply mean the faculty to give us advice, to tell us, okay, well, that kind of that's kind of a contradictory statement hmm. but they do have the the power to tell us morally what's right and wrong that's i think a better way to say it so the priest is able to say yes this is wrong or yes this is right in this time of crisis uh, the faithful do not do any wrong if they verify this how do you verify it by looking at the past teachings of the of the church but one thing that i this is my own opinion and i think i think this is the opinion of the church there will always be a teaching church. Uh, some people have the opinion that there there might be a time where there might not be any priest or any bishop, and I think that would be a, a that would be basically admitting defectibility in the church. It's a topic we will cover later, but there will always be at least a bishop, at least a priest that is teaching the true doctrine, that is teaching the true morals, that has those uh, those faculties of the church. If I'm not mistaken, we find it clearly stated in um, Ludwig, a, a common theological manual, that there will always be pastors in the church. Yes, and here is actually the reference that Father Saunders brought to us. It's in the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ogt. Page is 278, and it's in the point regarding the perpetuation of the hierarchy, and it says, The Vatican Council teaches... Just as he, Christ, sent the apostles whom he had elected for himself from the world, as he himself was sent by the Father, so he wishes that there should be pastors and teachers in his church to the end of time. This is found in Denzinger 1821. These pastors and teachers are the bishops, the successors of the apostles. And then he explains, The perpetuation of the hierarchical powers follows necessarily on the indefectibility of the church desired by Christ. And he, he continues going on this topic. I, I do have a question about that, and maybe we'll cover this on a future episode. But I was just wondering um, how, you know, average Joe Faithful 
Um, as as average Joe faithful, how do I know which who are the true pastors who have the authority to rule me? I think if if one studies the catechism and one reads the scriptures, uh, you will come to the knowledge of that. You know, in the catechism, even in the most basic catechism, you know what is necessary for you to have valid sacraments. You know what is the basic needs of the faith. And if, if you're with a priest and the priest is not right in something, you will find out. If you're careful, if you're really careful and you really care, you will find out. You know, you will ask to yourself, is this a valid priest? Has he been validly ordained? Does he hold to the true doctrines of the church? Uh, does he hold to, you know, is he part of those priests and bishops right now that are holding to the true faith? Um, I think that every person that is careful about it finds that truth and finds uh, is able to find that out. Uh, the To be more practical, right now in our day, uh, time, I would definitely say this. First of all, the priest or the church where you go to should not adhere to the Second Vatican Council. It is clear that the Second Vatican Council has uh, relinquished the Catholic faith. It's a new religion. So that's that's number one. They should not adhere to the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the second thing is he should not adhere to any heretic hierarchy. You know, there are a lot of their bishops and, and even the Francis himself. There are a lot of people, a lot of people who are holding positions of hierarchy, but they are heretics. They're not Catholics. So if you're adhering to them, uh, that's not the right place to be. The second thing is he has to be validly ordained. And what that means is that he has to be ordained by a true bishop and with the true right, which is a right that was used before Vatican Council, before the Second Vatican Council, excuse me. And finally, well, he has to have the right morals and the right faith. I might be missing some things here, Father, because this is a topic for that would probably require a show in itself, but those are some of the things that you should look into to know if you're going to a lawful pastor. Mm-hmm. And I think that I would like to comment here on, on what Brother said, because there is a distinction to be made. You know, our priests and our bishops don't claim to be what's titled the ordinary pastors. Right? We're not, I, I didn't come into my office of pastor here at Our Lady of Victory with set bounds to my parish and as a successor to the pastor before me appointed by the bishop who succeeded, you know, there's not that ordinary structure. We're not functioning in ordinary time. And I think that it's akin to, suppose you had a city where uh, city hall was destroyed, maybe an earthquake, whatever it was, all the elected administration, all the authoritative administration. Now we're not going to say all here, but just it's analogy. It's not perfect but was gone, or maybe you couldn't reach them. If you were an administrator in the field, if you were a police officer, for example, whose guy, whose role it is to enforce the, enforce the laws and help people and et cetera, you would not just drop the ball and say, well, we're not going to do anything because we can't get a hold of the, the leaders right now. You would enforce the laws as they stand to the best of your ability. So there's a bit of a distinction to be made that I cannot, you know, we can't claim the authority of, of ordinary authority in the same way because it's somewhat of an emergency situation you would say or an extraordinary situation so that is an important distinction to be made and i think that also it is a warning sign for people if they see authority or if they see clergy derogate to themselves or take to themselves authority that they shouldn't claim 
Right? So if if clergy starts saying, well, this is my opinion and you have to follow it, that's that's a bit of a warning sign. We should look for clergy who follow and enforce the teachings of the church and who, while they may be willing to give us their opinion on a certain matter, are not going to hold us to their what's merely their opinion as authoritative. I hope I hope that's clear enough that um, that you know they are they are exercising and they are enforcing an authority, um, but they're not not claiming one to themselves that they don't have. And I would say that in the confessional, this is something very important. In the confessional, the priest does have authority over the penitent supplied to him by God in the present circumstances. So in that case, there is a very, uh, very, very important and serious particular authority there. So I hope I expressed myself well enough. Um, Like Father said, it might be a topic for a whole whole show almost, but I I hope that uh, helps to make it somewhat clear. I thought that was those were some very important remarks, and just commenting on that once more, you know, just like trying to uh, bring it home to people. Um, what Father said in there is very important. Uh, first of all, uh, the priests right now and the bishops in this time and age, we have uh, the duty to do what the church always did, and that's why you know, as a priest, you can say this is what the church always taught, this is what the church has always said in matters that have been defined, that are common teaching, where there is no controversy. And But if you have a priest, as Father is saying, that comes and tells you something that is not defined, that is a matter of controversy, that the church has never actually made a statement on that, then he doesn't have an authority to force you or to bind you under mortal sin or to refuse the sacraments to you based on that opinion, because it's just his opinion. And that's what Father is stressing right now. We don't have right now an authority to give us an opinion and to just bind us to that opinion. But we do have all the things that have been defined in the church in the past that we as priests do what the church has always done. And that was what the bishop would always tell us. You know, we do what the church has always been wont to do. And that point of confessional is super important of the confession. When you go to a priest so that he hears your confession, you are putting yourself under his jurisdiction. The priest is acting as a judge there. And so just by the mere fact that you're going to confession, you're acknowledging the priest's power to tell you what to do. As Father said, that's an authority that, that is at least supplied by the church in that moment. But that that is required. If the priest didn't have the power to judge you and to tell you what to do morally, obviously we're talking about uh, something that is not sinful. He's giving you advice as the church would always give. Uh, then that confession would be invalid. You have to have that. So the moment you go to confession, you're acknowledging that authority of the, of the priest. <laughs> God, God gives us, God will always supply to the church the authority it needs to carry out the work it's for. He made it to get souls to heaven. It will be there till the end of time. And he will give at least the minimum amount of authority we need to do our work, which we see in the confessional. Aside from that, uh, a Catholic should have the spirit of obedience. And he does have to be on his guard today because there are many false shepherds, but he should seek to find a shepherd who professes the Catholic faith, teaches the Catholic faith, and only holds a person to the Catholic faith. That that pastor, that that person exercising that office is only there 
as a as carrying out that work of Christ. So I hope that gives kind of a simpler bit of a guideline. And to address it more fully, we would have to go into a different episode, I think. Yeah. We will take a short break and we'll be back for more. You're listening to The Catholic Wire. In The Catholic Wire, we have pledged to provide our online content free of charge in order to benefit as many souls as possible. If you wish to contribute to the support of our network, please go to our website to provide a donation. All your contributions will be used exclusively for the propagation of the Catholic faith. In the Catholic Wire, we greatly appreciate your questions and stories, and we would like to feature them on the air. If you have anything you would like to share, please send it as a voice message, and we may select it to appear in our podcast. I'm, I'm thinking we probably shouldn't go too much into the topic today of the Pope, but we, we should definitely explain a little bit of what, what is the, the belief of the Church and how can we apply that to our current situation. Uh, first of all, you know, our position in regards to the papacy is one of utter devotion to the papacy. We love the papacy, we love the institution of the papacy. And that's precisely why we cannot accept to say that the Pope is saying error or that the Pope is teaching false or evil morals and false doctrines. Um, here the Catechism is telling us the Pope, he's, who, who is the Pope? The Pope is the head of the Church. He is the Vicar of Christ. He is the one that takes the place of Christ. And all of us, all, all of us Catholics, are bound to have devotion and, and obedience to the Pope. That's why we are called Roman. Uh, what happens if the Pope or if the person taking the place of the Pope abandons the Catholic faith? Let's say, for example, that the Pope suddenly says, I'm a Muslim now, and I'm going to be teaching <laughs> Islam. Uh, well, would you still follow him? Brother, would you follow him? You bet I would not. <laughs> yeah. So why not? Because he's not Catholic anymore. He doesn't right. have authority anymore the moment that he becomes a Muslim. That's, a, that's kind of a more graphic example. But if the Pope were to abandon just one aspect of the faith, just one teaching of the faith, it would be the exact same thing. He would abandon the faith and he would cease being Catholic. So right now, faithful Catholics, when they see the person in the place of the Pope or the bishops uh, following false doctrines and teaching evil morals and pretty much falling into heresy, which is the main factor, that means that they are not Catholic anymore and therefore not only can they not be the lawful authority, they cannot even be Catholics. They're not even in the same fold. And so that, what position do we have to take? We're forced to take a position where we say, we love the papacy, we're waiting for a Catholic Pope. We will be faithful to all the Catholic Popes from the past. We're here holding our ground, holding the fort for our Catholic Pope when he comes. But this person that is right now taking the place of the Pope is certainly not Catholic and therefore cannot be the Pope. Somebody sent me a, a screenshot yesterday. And, you know, people might tend to think this is a bit of a fringe idea, which for many years, it was certainly not a mainstream idea. But this, this screenshot is quite striking to me. So many of our listeners may be familiar, and maybe most of them wouldn't be familiar, but there's a very popular YouTuber called Dr. Taylor Marshall. 
Now, not someone I recommend. He's a quasi-traditional person, but he has a very large following amongst those who are searching to be Catholic. And he posted a poll asking the question, do you believe Pope Francis, formerly George Bergoglio, is currently, today, the valid Catholic Pope, Vicar of Christ on Earth, valid Supreme Pontiff, and valid successor to St. Peter? 63% responded, yes, Francis is Pope. 37% responded, no, that he is not the Pope. So that's quite striking of, of that is so obvious. And that was out of 2000, roughly 2000 votes. Um, but that, you know, it's becoming very, very obvious to people. And, uh, you know, I could talk for, <laughs> I could talk for longer, I guess, on this point. And do we really want to address this thoroughly here? Or? Yeah, go ahead, Father. Okay, so there's a, a very, um, what I find. Uh, I just I just want to say something. I don't have yeah. jurisdiction to tell Father whether if he can go or not in the episode, but it's just an opinion. <laughs> there we go. No authoritative. No, actually, I guess that that jurisdiction would belong to Brothers since he's our host, I suppose. Right. Yes, but, uh, <laughs> jurisdiction. I feel sorry for the editor of this of this particular episode. Um, I think we have a yeah. Okay, so what's a Catholic to do, right? You're faced with this situation where you just want to be Catholic. You just want to obey your pastor, like Father said, right? You just want to go to church, be able to do what the priest says, practice the Catholic faith, receive the sacraments, live your life, get to heaven. That's what Catholics want. They don't. Most Catholics don't want to stick their nose into theology books. They're not concerned about canon law. You know, at least not deep stuff. They want to know their faith the way they need to and just live their life, live a good Catholic life. The first thing I would say is, yes, that would be nice. As a priest, I would like a similar thing, but it's not quite the situation we find ourselves in. So we can't um, we can't throw our hands up and go, well, this is a difficult situation, so I'm just going to ignore it. That's not a solution to a problem. We have to. We know the Catholic Church is there. We have to put the effort in. So, but what's the Catholic to do looking at this situation? And there's been historically kind of three responses to the situation because good Catholics who are studying their faith look at this and go, okay, something is wrong. This new religion is not Catholic. I know it's not true. It's obvious to me it's not true. How do I explain this? And that question naturally goes to the question of the Pope because he's the center of authority in the church. They go, okay, so what, what do I say about this? How do I explain this? And the first or one reaction is to simply say, okay, he's the Pope. That's it. I'm going to be as Catholic as I can. I'm going to practice my faith as well as I can, just as so far as he says. So this is like the Ecclesia Dei or the Fraternity of St. Peter, where you have a Latin uh, cohort or a Latin section within the Nervous Order religion. They have what were called indult masses that they allow Latin to be used. They allow ceremony. And so people, many people happily go there. And by all accounts, they have good sermons and whatnot. But it's still part of the new organization. And the priests are now validly ordained. But this is one answer to say, okay, we will just be as Catholic as we can within the pale of the new religion. But there's a problem there because that reduces Catholic, that reduces tradition reduces Catholic truth to a preference. I prefer the Latin mass. I prefer traditional morality. 
But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that Pastor Bob down the street who will, you know, just marry you if you're living together and give communion to divorced people. I can't really say much about him because we're part of the same organization. So that is kind of the first reaction of, okay, this is the church. He's the Pope. We're just going to do what we can within it. But that's not a solution. It's just an easier way of life and it reduces tradition to a preference. And then you have what could be called recognize and resist or mainly the Society of Pius X, that they say, okay, this man is the Pope, but we're going to run our own ship because we don't think he's doing it right. And this is a very, um, very, very dangerous attitude. In my, in my opinion, this attitude is even more dangerous than that of those who stay within, say, the fraternity of St. Peter, because to recognize uh, a man as Pope you have to recognize his authority. You can't just run your own ship. It's like someone saying, okay, uh, you know, there's Peter. He's Peter. He's the captain of the ship. We recognize him as captain, but we're going to go jump on our own dinghy and sail by ourselves. But he's our captain. It just does. It's not, it's not reasonable. It's not logical. And in my opinion, it is ultimately going to undermine faith, people's faith entirely. Because to maintain this position, you have to undermine the idea of the papacy. Mm-hmm. essentially the pope, the pope doesn't matter and the papacy is the rock is the foundation on which the church is built as our lord said that were peter and upon this rock i will build my church so that's the it's kind of the fence sitting position of the sspx very dangerous to people's faith and then you have what's called certificantism which is of course the position uh that we hold to that okay how do i square what's happening with the authority of the papacy we say simply well, clearly this man cannot be the Pope other, because I can't put the two together. I can't stay in his religion and be a Catholic, but I can't leave his religion and acknowledge him as Pope because I'm bound to obey and follow him as my pastor, as, my, as the vicar of Christ. And so the only possible conclusion, the only logical conclusion is that he is not the Pope. And that that is the true a conclusion and also it's a conclusion that once people have reached and maybe father or brother maybe you've seen the same experience that they breathe a sigh of relief and they say oftentimes when they finally come to this conclusion and we see them start come to mass they say finally i don't have to try to explain things away anymore i can just mm-hmm. be catholic yes definitely another nice thing is that everybody around you going to church with you believes the same thing as you it's not like the Novus Ordo, where every person in the pew has their own religion. <laughs> well, even in the SSPX, in the SSPX, it's kind of like some of them are sedevacantes, but they won't say it. So it's it's kind of like you're walking into the church and wondering, hmm, I wonder what he, where he's standing at. Mm-hmm. That is such a good way to put it, Father, and I think it's very important. Uh, we will I, cover. I, sh- I should Sorry. say, uh, I have Bishop Sanborn to thank for that. Me- thank for that method of presenting it. He was mm-hmm. he was the original one I saw presented in that way. I do enjoy how he, he puts things in, in a very dialectic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that was the proper term. Uh, actually, <laughs> not quite. Not quite. <laughs> well, what would be the proper term? Uh, Logical? Me- methodical, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he, does, he does use dialectics, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing that, uh, that you know, comes to mind in regards to this is... What you were saying, you know, the, a lot of people, I believe, 
don't want to go into this. And it's kind of like the attitude of the ostrich. You know, the ostrich, when, when it's a bird, a huge bird, and when it gets afraid, it puts its head on the sand. And, you know, you can come and kill it, you know, but they're, they put their head on the sand like that's going to keep them safe. Um, and that's sometimes what may happen with a Catholic in, in this day and age. It's like you don't want to look into it because you are afraid of the consequences or, you you know, it might be too troublesome to do so. But it all comes down to a question of what are you willing to accept in conscience? What can you put in your conscience that is sinful or not? And, uh, you know, that's what usually pushes people to to the truth. The fact that it comes to a point where they say, I cannot accept this. I cannot accept, you know, that they're accepting uh, homosexuals in the church. I cannot accept that they're accepting divorce in the church. I cannot accept that they're twisting morals or faith. And uh, something I would advise to kind of understand the, the gravity, the seriousness of the situation is this. As a lay person, you might go to church. And as Father said, you, you, t- you learn the catechism, you learn the sacraments, you learn the Ten Commandments. You just want to go to church, go back home, live your Catholic life. But then consider what the priests are putting themselves through, the, the priests that are in the wrong position. You know, as a priest, you're being told you have to give communion to people that are in sin. You have to give the body of our Lord to someone that is scandalously, openly denying him and living in sin. Are you willing to accept that? As a priest, you're being told you cannot condemn homosexuality or sodomy or anything of those things anymore. You have to see all those sins happening in front of your face and you have to let them do and be quiet about it. As a priest, are you willing to accept that? As a priest, you have to see your head, your vicar, your pastor committing idolatry in the very same place where St. Peter died and where many martyrs died not to commit idolatry. Are you willing to accept that? And, you know, to give an example... Uh, we talked about this in the crisis of the church, actually, so I'm not going to give it again. As a priest, are you willing to accept to put Buddha next to the crucifix and tell everyone, come and worship? So when you put yourself in that position and you realize, okay, this is what priests have to accept to be here. Not all of them, not in, not in all parishes. I'm not saying that all of them have to. But eventually you would have to be in that position where you are okay with those things. And that gives you an idea of just how serious the problem is. It's not something you can ignore and just go to your parish. Um, when I was about to join the seminary, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my dad in the spot here a little bit. Uh, in Mexico, we don't, a lot of people don't study very much these problems, and, and they're not very concerned about them. And this is a while ago, several years ago. Things were not as clear. And when I was going to join the seminary, my father said to me, why don't you join the Society of St. Pius X? You know, they're much bigger. There's much more structure there. But what I said to my dad is, I cannot accept that. If you're telling me something that is not the Catholic Church, even just one point, excuse me, not the Catholic teaching, even if it's just one point, I cannot accept that. How can I live? How can I preach? How can I be up there knowing that there is something that I know is not true and I'm being quiet about it and I'm just accepting it? It's impossible for me. And I think every Catholic, every good Catholic, should make that question to himself. What am I accepting here? Am I willing to accept this? Am I willing to actually teach, preach, and defend these doctrines? And if the answer is no, then you have to move. You have to go to where the truth is. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
is thinking about people that come to come to church because that can be another thing where it's like okay you may you know make this decision and then it's you come to this conclusion that it's kind of like oof, stepping off into the unknown you know and something that we comment about um set of the contest circles and is that no one really wakes up in the morning and goes man i wish there was no pope you know <laughs> it's, it's not like it's not like the priests the traditional priests are like oh i'm so happy there's no pope i don't have to worry about that not at all it's a nightmare for the clergy and for the faithful but we're here and we're happy to be here because it's true and in my experience you do get you do come across the people who come to this for the novelty. There are the novelty seekers that it seems like kind of a fringe idea, or it seems, you know, kind of like an extreme idea. And we do see those people, but in my experience, we see them come and go because they come for the novelty, but they don't stay for the reality, which is the practice of the Catholic faith. And so it's not, it's not a group of people that are here because we want this to be the case by no means do we want it to be the case that we don't have a Pope, but we are solidly convinced in conscience that this is in fact a situation, which also leads to devout parishes mm-hmm. because the people who come are there because they value their faith so highly that they're convinced that they must do this in spite of all the obstacles and difficulties that come their way. That is very, very true. I would like to just, uh, this is something that we could go into for a long time, and we probably will. But uh, just in case there are some non-Catholic listening to to this episode, uh, something that is interesting is how the catechism goes into why we have to have a St. Peter. Why do we have to have a pope? Why do we have to have bishops? And, you know, the, the, the church, as we said in the Old Testament, even, you saw that there was a hierarchy. And again, we here, we even those who hold the position of that the Holy See is vacant, we're devoted to the papacy. We're devoted to the hierarchy. You need a hierarchy to rule the church. And even now and in this day and age where we have this crisis, there is the teachings of the hierarchy. We have all the writings of the popes, of the previous popes. We have all the ordinary magisterium of the church, which we will cover in the future episode. But if you, for example, go to a church like, you know, the Church of Christ or Victory Church or whatever else they might name it, you have realized that this is these are opinions of men and they are each one is running their own show. Christ and God, God works with order. He always works with order and clarity. And for that order and clarity, an institution becomes necessary. If you look at the scriptures, if you really look at the gospel, and even so, especially at the Acts of the Apostles, you will come to realize that even in scripture, it is very clearly stated that the church has a hierarchy, that it has a ruling, a ruling uh, group of members that are supposed to be the ones that, that relay everything else to the other members. It's not a position of, of aristocracy in, in the sense of, uh, of privilege. It's not that these people are privileged in the sense of, you know, they they get to take money from you or they get to have power over you for unjust things. Actually, those in hierarchy are more of servants. You know, the priests, the bishops, even the Pope himself suffer greatly in performing their roles because they are servants of a great number of people. 
And it's just beautiful to see this. A lot of Protestants have the idea of the hierarchy and the order in the church as something that uh, restricts and that takes away from you. It's actually quite the opposite. To give an example really quick, because we don't have a lot of time, is, this, is the difference between a child, an orphan child without parents and family, or a child without a family. The Catholic person is a child with a family. He has brothers and sisters up in heaven. He has parents. He has older brothers. He has a, a, a great father, you know, that, that is watching over him and that is guiding him. He doesn't have uncertainty on what God is asking of him. While a Protestant would be a child without parents, a child without a family. You don't have any family in heaven that you can talk to. You don't have parents that uh, can lead you. Or, you know, you, you're, choose, you're free to choose them and just go to another place where you don't like it. I, I had to explain as much as I could very briefly, but I hope I relate the point. Having the church and having the papacy and bishops, it's a huge blessing. And it's part of the blessing that we have as Catholics. That's a beautiful image. Um, I guess we'll move on to the final questions in this section. The next one is, why did Christ found the church? That's me. I mean, that's me that needs to answer the question. <laughs> Christ founded the church to teach, govern, sanctify, and save all men. Are all bound to belong to the church? All are bound to belong to the church, and he who knows the church to be the true church and remains out of it cannot be saved. Why must the true church be visible? The true church must be visible because its founder, Jesus Christ, commanded us under pain of condemnation to hear the church, and he could not in justice command us to hear a church that could not be seen and known. What excuses do some give for not becoming members of the true church? Some excuses given for this are, first, they do not wish to leave the religion in which they were born. Second, there are too many poor and ignorant people in the Catholic Church. Third, one religion is as good as another if we try to serve God in it and be upright and honest in our lives. How do you answer such excuses? To the first one, that they do not wish to leave the religion in which they were born, we would say it is as untrue as to say that we should not heal our bodily diseases because we were born with them. To the second one, that there are too many poor and ignorant people in the Catholic Church, we would say that to say that such a thing is actually to declare that this is Christ's church, because Christ always taught the poor and ignorant and instructed his church to continue that work. And to the third point, that to, to those that say that one religion is as good as another, that is to assert that Christ labored uselessly and that he taught falsely. For he came to abolish the old religion and found the new in which alone we can be saved, as he himself declared. Why can there be only one true religion? Because a thing cannot be false and true at the same time. And therefore, all religions that contradict the teaching of the true church must be false, must teach falsehood. If all religions in which men seek to serve God are equally good and true, why did Christ disturb the Jewish religion and the apostles condemn heretics? And that concludes the questions in this section. So, fathers, um, anything to add to these answers? Would you like to go first, Father? Uh, sure. Just a brief comment about are all bound to belong to, belong to the church. Before starting this episode, we did um, talk about that. We we will address this someday in more depth in a uh, in another podcast. 
about the question of outside the church, there's no salvation and baptism and et cetera, those, all those questions, because it's too much to go into um, right at this particular part, but we will be addressing that in one of the, one of our episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, father. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important, I think for people to understand that the, the Catholic uh, teaching in that regards uh, the Holy Fathers, the Popes, uh, the Saints have always insisted on the fact that you can only be saved within the Catholic Church. Now, the question that we will be answering in that podcast is, um, what happens for if a person, for example, never came to know the true Catholic Church, and they did what was best in, in you know, what, what they deemed best to please God? It is quite a... a complicated thing to explain and that's why we want to leave it for another podcast because there are teachings of the popes on these regards but many factors need to be explained and put into place what we should know for sure is that you need to be you need to belong to the catholic church if not in fact at least in desire you need to at least wish to belong to the catholic church and wish to please god and and wish to do what's best according to your conscience in as much as you know from god's revelation and teachings now, uh, sorry, go ahead. Pope Pius XII expressed that as belonging to the soul of the church. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk more about that later. Now, this episode is coming close to an end, I guess. So uh, I'll I'll go into the part of the excuses giving not to belong to the true church. And I find it funny. This catechism is a little bit old. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of these excuses have been updated now. Others <laughs> remain the same. One thing mm-hmm. that particularly is uh, notorious to me is the third one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I took the easy one, Father, I'm sorry. Uh, And that's very, very common nowadays, very common. A lot of uh, so-called Christians will say, well, I believe in Christ. I believe in the Virgin Mary. You know, some of them do. Others don't. Um, I believe in the Ten Commandments. Uh, You know, I'm sure I can be saved. You know, I'm sure I can serve God here because, you know, I I believe in Jesus, they say. And the fact is that any any other church that is not the Catholic Church denies some fundamental truth of revelation. And that is something that needs to be understood. There is no such thing as a Catholic Church that has all the truth and then a Protestant Church that has all of the necessary truths, but not some of them. There's no such thing as that. If you belong to a Protestant church, if you belong to any other Christian denomination, implicitly, at least, you are accepting the denial of some fundamental truth of revelation. Give an example. I was teaching catechism to uh, one of my good friends, who is actually a Protestant, and and she was saying to me, well, we believe the same things. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, no, we don't. Uh, you believe many of the same things that we do, but for example, you don't believe in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We do. And oh, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Because if we are right, Catholics, then you are refusing to adore Jesus Christ because he's present in the Holy Eucharist. So that's a huge problem. It's a huge sin in a certain, not in a certain, it's a huge sin. If we were wrong, and you were right, then we would be doing something incredibly evil. We would be adoring a piece of bread. So it's not a question that is uh, not fundamental. It's not a secondary matter. It's something very, very crucial, very important. And the same applies for all Christian denominations and all religions. 
uh, that's precisely one of the problems with Vatican II right now, that Vatican II is basically saying this, they all do the same thing. No, they don't. They are saying lies and lies that are very, very uh, damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it brings to mind the uh, words of our Lord, he who is not with me is against me and he who gathers not with me scatters. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, you know, he who comes with me some of the time, it's all right. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of, you have to believe Christ and what he taught or you don't. And divorce is a, is a perfect illustrator of that. To my knowledge, there is no Christian religion besides Catholicism, which takes our Lord at his word and forbids divorce of a Christian marriage, divorce and remarriage. Mm-hmm. But uh, comment, uh, just to make another comment, you said, you know, some of these excuses would be updated. And I would say, yes, that's true. You know, the first one there, they do not wish to relieve the religion which they are born. I think um, much of a society is not born into any religion. And many people who are born into religion do wish to leave it. So this this <laughs> excuse is definitely, definitely uh, antiquated in today's world. And I think a more apt excuse would be that uh, religion is unscientific, is illogical, is, uh, you know, kind of lowly and archaic and medieval and for ignorant and bigoted people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would just say simply that that is wrong. If you take the time to look at the Catholic faith. Now, there are some some uh, Christ- versions of Christianity, if you can put it that way, some religions that are very ignorant and bigoted that simply say, well, this is how it is, and it doesn't matter what you say. But if you look at the Catholic faith, ignorance is not something that can be charged with. I would challenge anybody to read the Summa Theologica. The brilliance of the Catholic writers historically is phenomenal. Their intelligence is, we would be hard-pressed to find people who could go toe-to-toe with them. On, on matters of, as far as intellect goes. And also the church is not unscientific. There's nothing in the Catholic faith that contradicts science. There are Catholics who are, um, you could say bigoted maybe in this regard. You know, there, are, there are some Catholics who take kind of a narrow view in regard to certain scientific issues. But if we look at the teaching of the church, we find that it is very broad. It is very, uh, it never never oversteps its bounds, never tries to impose opinions outside of its, outside of its pale of faith and morals. And uh, so I'd say that those, those claims before you just accept them and make that your reason not to be religious, take a look at what the church actually teaches, not what is presented by media as teaching or not what your conception of it is. But what does the church actually teach and what approach does it actually take towards matters? And I think people will be surprised to see in some cases just how false it is that the church is unscientific or or uh, or anti-intellectual. Definitely. And, and that's actually one thing that I lo- and thank you for bringing that up, Father, because that's such a good such an in- such an important point. That's something I love about our Catholic faith. It's very logical very reasonable, I would say scientific, because church and science go actually hand in hand, true science, of course. And the whole of the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith has been explained and questioned, not only explained, but questioned. 
And that's something that is very particular of our faith. When you have other religions where you have to accept things blindly and you never have intellectuals actually questioning them, questioning them, I say, not in, in, in the sense of, uh, of admitting a, pro a possible error, but questioning them in the sense of saying, challenging it, say, is this true? Is this true? Can this be explained logically? Can there be objections against this? You know, all the other faiths or religions accept things blindly. You know, you will accept a revelation from some God or some guy that, you know, supposedly received an angel, Mormona, and is telling you to build a huge church with a golden thing on top. Uh, the Catholic faith, uh, Father was mentioning the Summa Theologica. For those who are not familiar, when you read the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas will pose a question or a thesis, and then he will say objections against this. This might not be true because this, and this might not be true because of that. This might not be true. He puts himself objections against the doctrine. And then he says, on the contrary, this is a true doctrine. And he answers all those objections. This is a document done in the so-called Dark Ages, you know, in the 1200s. And this is the basis of a lot of the theology that we have today, the, that explanation of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's beautiful to know that our faith is actually reasonable. And, and yeah, that's, that's one huge thing, one huge blessing that we have. And again, I would encourage people, as Father did, to look into things, to actually study it and challenging it so that you can see that it is, those questions have been answered. I have a, a funny story. A priest had told me about the, the Summa and you mentioned the objections. And St. Thomas is so well-spoken and so well-informed that when he states his objections, they're pretty convincing. Like if you didn't have his answers handy, sometimes you would be convinced of the objection you know, or of the false. And so this priest's father used to call him and say, did you know this and this? And the priest would say, no, dad, that's the error. You have to read the whole thing. That's, supposed to, that's the false part. But he does. He, you know? So he makes some pretty solid objections, but he gives more solid answers. Yep. Yep. Definitely. I apologize. You might be able to hear. I think maybe the snowbirds are here. We have jets flying over the house right now. Oh, I was wondering what that was. Okay. I think it must be because they're very low flying. We can't see them from where we are, but uh, it could be the snowbirds. We're near the airport. They, and for our American and Mexican listeners, the snowbirds are our, our Air Force acrobatics team up in Canada. So, oh, like okay. the Blue Devils in the U.S. I like the, only the, our, the only ours are Only ours are holier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I have no more comments about this. It's, it's a very deep topic, and I'm sure we will cover it more in-depth in future episodes as well. Yes, I, I, I would certainly like to do so myself. All right. Well, um, now all of our listeners who uh, are not members of the Catholic Church have no more excuses. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we'll give them even less excuses when they turn in next, next episode for the next lesson on the church. For today, I want to thank my guests, Father Saunders and Father Zepeda, Thank you so much for, for joining us. And um, thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of What Every Catholic Should Know. For the greater glory of God, I'm Brother Alexius, and you're listening to The Catholic Wire. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Wire. If you have found this show helpful, please say a prayer for all our collaborators. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels and share with your friends. For questions and comments, you may contact us at thecatholicwire.org.